At his death, Dr. Barnes gave great commendations to the king's majesty that he should fear God and maintain religion and keep marriage undefiled most honorably, and then declared his faith in his articles. Then they prayed together, and Barnes said to Master Priest, being sheriff, Know ye wherefore I die, seeing I was never examined nor called to any judgment. He answered, He knew nothing, but thus we are commanded. Then he took Master Sheriff by the hand and said, Bear me witness, and my brother, that we die Christianly and charitably. And I pray you, and all the people, to pray for us. And if the dead may pray for the quick, we will pray for you. And so he, and the rest, forgave their enemies, and kissed one another, and stood hand in hand at the stake, praying continually, until the fire came, and so rested in Christ Jesus. Welcome everyone, this is A Word Fitly Spoken, I'm Willie Grills, joining me today, the Reverend Adam Kuntz, to talk about, well, what do we want to call it, Adam, uh, Lutheranism in English, early English Reformation, <laughs> we don't really know exactly what we want to call it. It's the Lutheran trail of blood in English is what we're doing here today. So. <laughs> there we go. I like it. So yeah, you'll get a couple of confusing titles out of us and a couple of divergent uh, episode streams from this introductory one, because from here, we'll embark on Lutheranism in English and go all the way through to the Americas. And then we'll also go on into the later English Reformation and talk about regicide and the Irish problem and all kinds of fun stuff. So <laughs> it'll be exactly. it'll be pretty right. fun in those terms specifically. <laughs> for our three Irish listeners and the two and a half Irish Lutherans, we're sorry for those <laughs> remarks, and we will we will apologize. All right. Well, first things first. How is the weather in Fort Wayne? Uh, overcast. Maybe baseball is going to get rained out tonight. I, I, I don't know. That would be sad, and and the boy would be sad if that happened. But that's that's at least it's can. little league. It's it's it's, re- it's real baseball, you know. It it's it's real baseball, and we love it. But my my garden could use more rain. Same here. I actually do hear thunder peeling in the distance here, so we may we may get lucky. We'll we'll find out. I've been I've spent yesterday kind of mucking around trying to get the chicken coop cleaned out and uh, putting fresh straw down. So I have a little bit of a cough going on, but don't worry. It's not plague. We'll be okay. (laughs) So we're hoping for a little rain, you know, to kind of get down some of this pollen, some of the dust, and certainly to help, help the garden. But speaking of gardening and other wholesome English activities, we want to talk about the English Reformation. And it's interesting that you and I, the two Anglos in the Word Fitly crew, are doing this while Zelwyn is off avoiding hunters and other things that he does. He's off with the uh, Rougarou, the Dogman, and the Chupacabra right. for a yeah. long weekend, and he cannot he cannot join us, unfortunately. David Paulides denies that he's ever been looking for Zalwin, but we know. <laughs> <laughs> but we know better. Right. He'll come in his 15th book. David Paulides, when are you coming on the podcast? We'll find <laughs> a subject you can talk on. We'll get you in. We'll make it work. Well... You know, it's uh, the English Reformation, uh, very important. And I think, Adam, it's good that we're talking about it now while we still can. While the men were, <laughs> while we're talking about this part of history that will soon be completely erased, and while the statues are 
not long for this world. Surely the testimony of these men will ring out into eternity, and ultimately no one will be able to silence the testimony of a man like Robert Barnes, for example. Right. And so we want to talk about this because we are an Anglophile podcast. We've not transitioned into other languages just yet. Not that there are any plans. Uh, We speak English. We are English Lutherans. We're English Christians. And so this is very important. We want to honor our fathers and mothers and have an honest historical discussion about how we got where we are. The Reformation, uh, sometimes Lutherans forget, is, is something that many Christians cling to in their own way. And so Lutherans view the Reformation in a different lens than, say, perhaps a Calvinist would, or a Baptist, a Restorationist, for example. And yet, it all really does have to do with the Continental Reformation, the early Reformation days, uh, with Luther. But as we're going to see, there are actually English roots going back even farther than that. And so, it's going to be inter- interesting. We're going to learn uh, you know, a lot about kings and queens and liturgical changes and all kinds of stuff that we know you're very excited about. So Adam, <laughs> where should we begin? Let's start uh, prior to Henry VIII, about whose divorce we will only talk a little bit because there's a lot more to the story. And we want to start in the late 14th and into the 15th century with John Wycliffe and his translation of the the first at least popular uh, English vernacular Bible. And then the group that comes out of Wycliffe's efforts who are called the Lollards, which is actually like Lutheran is a, is a term of abuse has to do with uh, mumbling and uh, babbling and an ironic description for people that are actually using the term that in the, you know, language of the 39 articles, tongues understood of men, the Lollards actually wanted a religion to be in the language of the people. So you're talking at least a hundred years before Luther's birth. Right. And this is going to be really a key in understanding the English Reformation. The Bible in the vernacular is of utmost importance. And it is in, and it's important in a subtly different way than what you see on the continent, at least in the German Reformation early on. Of course, the vernacular translation is important. Right. But we're going to see, you know, we'll unpack what we mean by this a little bit later in the episode. Yeah. And I I think I think as we go through this, like, listener, pay attention in these episodes to things that if you're listening to this and you live in America or the United Kingdom or Canada, you're going to find familiar as sort of just uh, natural parts of the religious ecosystem and and learning more about English Protestantism and English religious history is very helpful in this way because you learn that, for instance, the notion of simply having a Bible to which you can refer over against the power of someone who would tell you that you can't simply listen to that Bible is very important throughout the story. And so not coincidentally, it's in the Anglophone world that you get churches that have no other particular way of talking about themselves except to say that they are Bible churches or churches of the open Bible. Right. And, you know, while we're on the Lollards, like you mentioned, um, you know, mumbling, well, the reason that we get that, or, you know, the reason why that's used is because it's derogatory toward uneducated, or, or it means you're uneducated, right. can only speak English. So, so <laughs> right. when, when, when right. you would be called a Lollard, it would be you would be considered dumb. Oh, you don't speak Latin. So you right. couldn't possibly know the truth of Scripture. Right. That spirit is, hey, guess what? Alive today among some people. <laughs> 
I mean, everywhere you look, somebody, you know, the, everywhere you look, these true believers are trying to make people doubt that they have the scriptures because it's a translation. It's even alive in Protestantism today. And it's, it's, a, it's a worrisome trend among yeah. the intelligentsia. Yeah, and I, I think this issue of authority, who has the authority to, to decide what, is, is in some ways the central question of the English Reformation, because when the Lollards could not effect change because they were not at all in power. But when you do come to the reign of Henry VIII, who is not the founder of a dynasty, but he is the inheritor of the Tudor dynasty, who are victorious in the Wars of the Roses. That's something to look up. There's Shakespeare wrote many plays about the whole ordeal. Understand that England is not firmly a united nation state, and the Tudors are themselves originally from Wales. And so the issue of authority, who has the authority to make what decisions, and how does that pertain to foreign authorities, such as the papacy, also the Holy Roman Empire, the King of France, and remember that England has historical claims, if not actual, actually much power of any kind by the 16th century on the continent in France specifically. The issue of authority is probably the central one. And so the questions that are driving this, like when you think about Reformation Day, for instance, there is, you know, at least a history of just, you know, preaching against the Pope on Reformation Day in Missouri Synod churches. And that's fine. But when we think about the Reformation, the Lutheran Reformation, we'll think about issues such as justification, right? Or uh, maybe if you have a little bit more theological education, you, th- you realize there are Christological issues or there are issues over the doctrine of sin or free will. The, those are all in play in the English Reformation, but very, very often, and it really throughout what you can think of as the Long Reformation, which is all the way to the restoration of the, the Stuarts at, um, at the end of the English uh, Civil Wars. The issue of authority, and scripture plays into this, who makes the decisions, I think is the central one. And I think it's really what's at the center of Henry VIII's decision to make any kind of break with Rome. I think the divorce is a kind of, uh, from Catherine of Aragon, his first divorce, is really a pretext more than anything, to be honest with you. Right. And I mean, and keep in mind, too, even going back to the Lollards, the first conclusion of the law, of the Lollards is a concern about the church being too involved in temporal affairs. Mm-hmm. And so when you're looking even at Henry's marriages, it's not simply a case of lust or wanting a new woman or whatever. Mm-hmm. There are political realities to him uh, siring an heir. Right. And that's not a defense of his divorce by any means, but it, there is a broader picture to it here. It's not just greed for power necessarily, although that could be part of it. It's just, it's all tied up here and and the church is entangled with everything. And so you actually have grand world powers at stake based upon this. So all very complicated. Again, not a justification for his divorce, but it is kind of funny. The people wagging their fingers several centuries from now about Henry's divorce while, well, it's not like we've taken a really hard stance on that um, in the church today. (laughs) Nope, not in the least. Um, I want to I, I want to give a little bit of kind of chronological anchoring to people. So you're talking you're talking this you're talking the early 16th century with Henry VIII. One hard date to start with in relation to the Reformation is 1521, when Henry actually writes, and he he probably did write it his assertion, and it's a response to Luther's Babylonian captivity of the church. And for for his very theologically conventional defense of Roman Catholicism, Henry is awarded with a title that English monarchs still bear, 
defensor fide, defender of the faith. Defender and of the faith, yeah. And he never uh, relinquishes it. He never does because it also includes <laughs> the assertion by the Pope that he is the head of the English church. Now, the Pope means something different, obviously, by that than what Henry will take it to mean. But it is it does serve as kind of pretext that Henry is the head of the Ecclesia Anglicana. And therefore, in England, he makes the decisions. This really doesn't have to do with a specifically, you know, he disagrees on transubstantiation or priestly celibacy at this point in 1521. But he does take seriously the notion that he is the supreme head of the Christian church in England. Right. Which is, I mean, if you go back to our Byzantium episodes, this should not surprise anyone. Right. That 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 things would develop in this way. And that relationship between, I mean, of course, the kings are not bishops, and even in the Church of England, they're not. And yet, you have a Constantine or a just or a Justinian-like rule going on, right? That that the king does have a heavy hand in um, in the affairs of the church. So again, it's not it's not exactly an overreach, historically speaking, by Henry. From the Pope's perspective, it is, but it's not a surprising reach, we'll say. Right. It has it has plenty of precedent. And so all of this plays into, as the 1520s and 1530s develop, the relationship, I mean, the fact that what will become in the 18th century Great Britain becomes, it will be styled Great Britain. The fact that it is on a set of islands is incredibly important because the relationship to the continent is always real politically and militarily, but that distance imposes uh, a time delay and sort of a separate set of events. So it, it, it is important that Henry wants to divorce a member of the house that rules the Holy Roman empire. And the fact that the papacy sides with the empire over Henry matters too. This causes Henry to begin to seek alliances, he can't ally with France. That's essentially unthinkable. <laughs> He's just fought what some people call uh, his his dynasty settled what some people think of as the first the first world war. That's probably an exaggeration, but the Hundred Years' War, the world that mattered. Right there, you go. <laughs> So he's not going to do that. And and so he can't ally with the Holy Roman Empire. And, and there, he's therefore politically set against the papacy. He begins to court in the 1530s. And this is where anyone that thinks of himself as a Lutheran or whatever be called a Lutheran comes into the story. Because Henry is now seeking political alliances with the small Caldic League. Right. So that's really the, the Lutheran Mutual Defense Association on the continent. <laughs> right. And so he he in order to ally with them, he begins to have theological dialogues. So who's who's having these theological dialogues? Because England is not a place that has undergone a reformation in the sense of priestly marriage or communion of both kinds or any of the markers of reformation, really, that one could hope to look for. That's it's very true. It's a, it's a fairly orthodox country from everything that we know. Think of probably Spain's reputation would probably apply to England at this time. Okay, so who are these people? There are from the 15 early 1520s onward Luther's books especially but also Melanchthon's, Justice Jonas's, Bugenhagen's, most of them in Latin but some things actually translated into English by Englishmen are getting into England and they're coming in by two ways. So this is sort of a media story. One is through 
we'll do the more obscure first, the East Anglian ports. And that's those publications and those people are mainly going to Cambridge. So Cambridge becomes a place that is a sort of hotbed, as it will remain really all the way through the Restoration, a sort of hotbed of Protestant options. So you have Cambridge graduates who are on, you know, who found the Plymouth Colony, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and you'll get uh, people who will be Lutherans long before that. And they're meeting at, and this is this links up with what is now popular American Christianity, they're meeting at the now defunct, destroyed White Horse Inn. You've got Thomas Cranmer, Hugh Latimer, Miles Coverdale, William Tyndale, Robert Barnes are all there, and they're reading so much Luther and Melanchthon that they're actually termed by their friends, the Germans. <laughs> okay, so right. um, all of that is going right. on. So basically, yeah. it's it's the standard story of college radicals from the Oxford, I mean, Wycliffe even gets thrown out of Oxford, so yep. Up, and then switch over to Cambridge a couple centuries later. So it's just a bunch of drunken college kids uh, turning the world upside down is basically what we're saying. <laughs> yeah, basically, except some of them, like Luther, happen to be Augustinian friars, including Robert Barnes, who right. on Christmas Eve right. in 1525 preaches a sermon that upsets the ecclesiastical hierarchy. And he gets himself into a a, a trial, civil, religious, these distinctions don't matter at this point, because he goes in front of Cardinal Wolsey, who is Henry's top advisor, let's say, at this time, and is convicted of uh, offenses against authority, especially. Again, the fact of authority is paramount here. Barnes, right, well, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about Barnes later, but he's he's a good example of Prior to Henry's political need to ally himself with Germans, there are plenty of people, both in Cambridge and also the other sources, London, where there actually are Lutherans who are foreigners trading. Right, and Barnes's trial, yeah, is going to is going to come at a. I mean, because we're kind of making it sound like it's a really clandestine thing. This that Luther's books being spread, but and it, it it is underground. But Wolsey is really trying to stop the infiltration of Lutheranism at this point. It, right. From the ecclesial perspective, it is getting out of hand. And so basically they hear Barnes sermons, they pick up all the dog whistles that he's blowing. Mm-hmm. And and so they hear Lutheranism in this. So right. I mean, even at this point, it is starting to 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 creep into the minds of of regular people. That's right. And and that the, the the notion of Lutheranism, when you see someone called a Lutheran in England, don't think of that too tightly, because there are always different theological streams flowing into and out of a group of people or any one thinker. But it, it is also a political accusation, because within Henry's court, there are different positions on what we should do about the different women he's interested in and the different things that we could do on the continent or whatever it might be. And so for someone to push Lutheranism too stringently will mean locking England into a certain set of political decisions and cutting off other options. And that is the last thing that they want. Well, we're up on our first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. Hey 
Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. The mission of Word Fitly Spoken is to put the Word of God at the center of all of life. To find out more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Adam Kuntz talking English Lutheranism and the English Reformation. So, Adam, let's pick right up where we left off and continue on. Let's talk a little bit more about um, the time of Henry VIII. Okay. So he tries to make alliances with uh, people who are confessionally Lutheran on the continent. There are two sets of meetings honchoed really by Robert Barnes because of reasons, uh, cultural and linguistic reasons we'll talk about later. Those meetings happen in two different uh, series, a couple years apart, but they founder uh, upon two different things. One is that the the Lutherans, or let's say diplomatically speaking, the Germans, cannot accept the legitimacy of Henry's first divorce. That is precisely the thing that he's looking for diplomatically, and they cannot accept that. Um, specifically, Luther and Melanchthon reject that. And if those two agree on something, you know that's what's happening. The English could not categorically accept the Augsburg Confession. Not all of the English, but some of them. Therefore, they couldn't sign on to it. That was a legal necessity to belong to the Small Caldic League in any sense. And they could not accept the Augustana. That is because of something we mentioned in the first segment. And that is that the the English, whether you think of them as Reformed or Lutheran or Protestant or even Catholic, are never moving in a single specific theological direction. There is no leading party. There you could say a commonality that you find, whether the guy is a sort of Erasmian Roman Catholic or a Lutheran or something else altogether, is there, there is a lot of dependence of, upon the Bible and the notion of sources and the purity of sources. A sort of Renaissance emphasis is very common, but there's no specific theological direction. So they, they can't go with that. The alliance doesn't happen. Henry will therefore shift pretty drastically back to persecuting anyone you could call a Lutheran or even a Protestant by the beginning of 1540. We'll talk about Barnes's death, but he's not the only one to die at that time. There are other significant voices uh, at this time. We probably want to talk about Tyndale before we talk about Cranmer, but those are definitely two to know if you're somebody that speaks or worships in English. Yeah, I mean, Tyndale as far as his translation of the scripture, and then, of course, you know, Cramner, uh, liturgically speaking, are tremendously influential to English speakers. Tyndale's going to give us the complete English New Testament in 1526. The year prior, he has a partial uh, translation uh, printed. but and he, and he does get uh, several other books, and then, of course, his own books like Obedience of a Christian Man and things like that. But it's it's tremendous because you are influenced by Tyndale, and you don't even know it. 
there are several yeah. uh, common English phrases that come uh, that are coined by him. Brother's keeper, salt of the earth, even something like it came to pass. Filthy lucre is another one. Mm-hmm. Um, I even think mercy seat they want to give to him, but then the Lufs are going to come up and tell me that, no, that's actually Luther. So we'll give that one to the Luther Bible. But there are just so <laughs> many phrases like that. Let there be light, I think, is one. That, and and it's, it has influenced every subsequent English translation. Yeah. And I would also add that Tyndall is the, in, the earliest English translation that the average reader can easily understand. Right. Wycliffe's is not quite as accessible. Um, uh, the, you know, his, his translations are, are a, diff, a rather different English. Tyndale's English is closer to us, arguably, because he influenced our language so much. And of right. course, coming in the, in the modern period. So tremendously important. Just as much as the Luther Bible is important for the German language, not not the church. I mean, yes, it is important for the church, but I mean, just speaking linguistically, right. how important it is and how uh, Luther's uh, Bible kind of makes a united German in a way, or so the historians say. You can agree or disagree with that, Adam. But that is <laughs> a common thing that they say. Uh, it certainly is the case, though, with Tyndall's New Testament. Yeah, I, I think one of the interesting permutations of that story is the fact that these English Bibles are produced on the continent and then shipped back through ports containing large numbers of Englishmen, especially Antwerp, back to England because they cannot be produced in Henry's England. Right. And so they get produced on the continent. I mean, even up until, I mean, the English Bible is is kind of outlawed much later than you think it would be. Which I <laughs> right. find interesting. Like it takes right. a long time for it to be really freely distributed. Correct. Well, a lot of times are because you know certain uh, notable translations, like the Geneva Bible, are going to have notes in them that are considered verboten uh, to the to the crown, for example. Right. And so, you know, but that's we're, we're going to have our film. Yeah, he has a few notes. Some of them, like the preface to Romans, is uh, to. Uh, an apparent, apparently largely a translation of Luther's preface to Romans, but that's not everywhere true. And sometimes the amount of Tyndale's Lutheranism can be exaggerated and has been by Lutherans who have looked into this, like Henry Eister Jacobs or William Dalman. Yeah. Well, and in Tyndale, of course, you get the problematic translations like overseer for bishop or congregation for ecclesia, for example. Right. So th- that that's always going to be a, a sticking issue at the time of the Reformation. And that's kind of a sly way to do it. Yeah, he has notes, but then there's the sly way that things are translated. I mean, right. maybe we should just do a whole episode on the English Bible, ending, of course, with the King James. Uh, no, I, I take that back. We will <laughs> we will end on the EHV for you for our there loyal you listeners out yes. there. Yes, but it Thank will you. basically jump from 1611 to like 1739 to 2018 or so. That's what we'll do. <laughs> so. <laughs> uh we'll stop we'll stop briefly to for an homage to the American Standard Version. Right. Well, they tried. But, a noble effort. Yeah, right. They did. They did. The other the other man to note, really kind of a fascinating man in his own right, and I'll put um Dermot McCulloch's biography of him in the show notes, is Thomas Cranmer, who is appointed yes. Archbishop by Henry, despite his Protestant th- sympathies. He is appointed as archbishop. And so there is strife going on also within the English episcopacy over the nature of religion within the English church. 
Cranmer will be the author after Henry's death and the coronation of his son, or really that's the minority of Edward VI still in 1549, of the first Book of Common Prayer in 1549, quickly followed by a revision in 1552. The 49 one, you can get copies of all these different editions. The 49 one is the one that's probably most interesting to most of our listeners because it's far and away the most Lutheran theologically. Mm. There are significant portions of the baptismal rite taken from Lutheran sources, which then kind of get back into Lutheranism in the United States many years later. But the Lord's Supper, the form for the distribution of Holy Communion in 1549, is also quite Lutheran. That will change just three years later because something else to note about Anglophone Protestantism is how theologically divergent things can be, even within the same, let's call it a church body. It's an anachronistic term. But even within the, quote, Anglican Church or Church of England, you can have bishops who themselves are, let's say, probably more what we would now call Reformed. Right. And so as much liturgical dependence as Cranmer displays in different ways, uh, even in confirmation, marriage, and baptism, on Luther specifically, that doesn't necessarily mean anything because he's not in, there's, there's no one so uniquely decisive in Anglicanism really ever as Luther right. is and for that, Lutheran. And that, and, that, and that continues on. It gets worse. Um, I mean, up yeah. until like, say, <laughs> the Civil War, it gets a little bad. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then you could argue today, I mean, of course, it's still present in the Anglican churches. Uh, the the various bodies are at odds with no no clear voice. I mean, even to this day, the Archbishop of, Can- of Canterbury is is a voice of importance. But does anybody really care what that druid says? I mean, seriously, uh, today. <laughs> it- so, <laughs> I mean, it, it really it, it's an it's an interesting character that the English Church has. And of course, when when your monarch is the head, and we're talking about a time, uh, Cranmer's time, where he's going to serve under three monarchs, and the monarchs actually cared about their religion. Apologies to the queen today, but I just I just don't know. Yeah, I just right. I just don't know what's going on there. But you know, you go from Henry the Eighth to Edward the Sixth. I mean, okay, but then Thomas is, shall we say, briefly Archbishop under Mary the First. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and, yeah. and so you, you couldn't be more different, really. And it's going to keep going that way uh, in varying degrees for a while with, e- with each monarch or ruler in the case of Oliver Cromwell, who will come up in a little bit in another episode. Yeah, I mean, we can't, you know, it, the problem with Cramner, not the problem, but his story is so interesting because it seems as if he flip flops a few times. Right. But he is pulled in such extreme directions, depending on depending on who the ruler is, right? Right. And so, well, I mean, you get Mary the one, you know, Mary the first there, uh, Mary Mary Tudor, who is, you know, what's her nickname, right? Yeah, bloody. That's uh, that's bloody. bloody yeah, Mary. bloody Mary. So if that that's a hint as as to how good it was for Protestants during that time, and <laughs> and so she makes a martyr of Cranmer, and it's it's interesting to watch his development. You look at like the famous painting of him in 1545, where he's nice and clean shaven, and that's about the period where he starts to waffle a bit. But by the time of his death, he has a glorious full beard. And uh, he even mentions it at his time of death. And, uh, you know, there's a beautiful account of his martyrdom that we might talk about 
uh, down the road. Or I should say execution. I, I think if I say martyrdom, that might be a loaded term for some people, but his execution. Right. And uh, and so the, the, these are times where the bishops are pulled in odd directions. It is still very dangerous in England to be a Protestant at certain points, and, and admittedly, very dangerous to be a Catholic at certain points in history as well. Right. And, and so this is just what happens when you have rulers who actually find importance in religion, I guess you should say. Right. And so the, the history of English uh, Lutheranism or English Protestantism is one of great upheaval and one step forward, two steps back kind of stuff, just constantly right. for the first several decades. Right. And you, you, alluded, you alluded to this, I think, uh, when you get a succession of monarchs under whom Cranmer serves— or if you go, the children of Henry VIII, so Edward is a minor when he comes to the throne, but he doesn't live very long. Then Mary, his sister, comes to the throne. She also relatively doesn't live that long. And then Elizabeth comes to the throne. You have three people who, by their public professions, honestly have three different confessions. Edward being <laughs> a, a sort of booser-like Reformed Protestant uh, with some liturgical sympathies, Mary being an Orthodox Roman Catholic, and Elizabeth having expressed in conversation with the Spanish ambassador uh, sympathies for the Augsburg Confession by name, but not really, I mean, the stuff that she fought over was not necessarily the formulation of Holy Communion in the Book of Common Prayer, but her supremacy over the bishops, that everyone would publicly conform to the Church of England. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's and see and see th- another thing you get. I mean, female monarchs between Mary and Elizabeth. I mean, we have the great work written um, against Mary one, the first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women. <laughs> and people kind of get that mixed up, which Mary he's writing it about, but uh, it was the more dangerous one because <laughs> because Knox really has to eat crow because then comes Elizabeth. And he's written all of these uh, anti. Um, what, what's the word for this? Gynarchy, I think, is the old word for that. Yeah, gyno- <laughs> gy- a gynocracy. Yeah, yeah, the gynocracy. Yeah. So, so there's. <laughs> so he would. <laughs> I love it. We should do an episode on that book. Can we? There you go. We're going to do it. Yeah. Well, we'll do it. Sc- we'll do Scottish Reformation sometime. That'll just be fun. So. Right. I mean, I, we know how you feel about it, and uh, I'm over here trying to bring it back, but. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, you see, this is the this is the problem with the English Reformation. I knew this would happen. We would just keep going off on these on these various streams here. But anyway, sorry. Proceed. I just I just had to get the first blast of the trumpet in there uh, when I right. could. So yeah, as as one does. I think a, a really significant historical fact for the future shape of Protestantism in English, and the reason that the historian Basil Hall will say, you know, Lutheranism is dead in England by the reign of Elizabeth is because when there are exiles all over the place in the history of English Protestantism, but the major destination for Protestant exiles in Mary's reign, when there's lots of reason to stick together as Englishmen, when you're abroad and to come back and to uh, come back into power, right? Because when they're out of power, they don't say, oh, okay, I'm sorry, how do I get along with you? But they say, "How how can we retake power the place that they go is mainly Switzerland. Switzerland, yeah. So they are they are at their sort of liturgical, most liturgically friendly. They are running in the stream of Martin Bucer, who will actually die in England 
has died already by the time of the Marian exiles. But most of them are much more significantly influenced by covenant theology in its various permutations, whether you speak of, to say Calvinism is probably too strong for everyone, because Wingley plays into this and Ecolampadius and many others, but, but covenant theology reformed very broadly, reformed theology becomes much more important for English Protestantism. Yeah. In, yeah. in the long run, in the long run in English history, Calvinism will win out, but it shouldn't surprise people that there is such a reformed influence for the exact reasons you say. They are, they are coming from the epicenter for reformed theology. And much like with the earlier Lollards, we'll go back to them. When they come from Switzerland, they're going to come back Bible in hand, vernacular Bible, Mm -hmm. with an idea that the Bible should have uh, sway over temporal laws and temporal temporal rules. So that's when you see a covenantal approach to things and kind of a proto-theonomic approach to government. Which has yeah, always no been question. there. I mean, I mean, even in right. even in Catholic England, church law. I mean, biblical law, you know, has legal standing in the civil courts, but right. it, it's going to be applied applied in a much stricter way, in a much more by the Bible kind of way going forward. Right, and and this this will play into things that will come to matter for stuff you don't, probably don't think of as religious, but the notion that we have in the United States. A, you know, England is our mother country. Uh, we have, we used to say, a government of laws and not of men. Well, that that's going to go, that's going to run through the English Reformation all the way back to Magna Carta, where uh, the right. king cannot be supreme in every realm of life. He simply cannot. It is ungodly for any authority to ha- to have tyranny over your conscience or over your body, ultimately. And so th- this strain matters a lot. Uh, even if you live in the United States and you have absolutely no interest in England, it matters because this is the shape not only of the religious environment that you encounter with Bible churches and nothing but the Bible and open Bibles, but also with your civil environment. This is why, for instance, you have responsibility in an, in an Anglophone country, in an English-descended country, that you would not in a different sort of government because we have always governed ourselves in this way. Right. And, and might I add why our particular form of government does not work in every part of the world. Right. Try, try as the mother, as the, as the fatherland may, may have had um, the empire, you know, it had to be ruled, it had to be administered in a different way in certain parts of the country. Right. Um, excuse me, excuse me, in certain parts of the, of the planet. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, this is, this is very important. The idea of a, of, a, of an actual document that, supersedes the men and the positions. Right. Which seems natural for us now, although the things we see around us today, <laughs> it might be a good time to be reminded right. of that. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And so this is sola scriptura taken in the way that we typically see it and in the way that it's typically portrayed in popular culture too. I would argue it's a it's a particular it's a more English version of it than what you saw on the continent. Yeah, exactly. Because there, there is something that is often, so often taken for granted in the story of Luther that is cannot be taken for granted by practically anyone in English history. And that is that the government is friendly to you. 
Luther secures <laughs> the protection of a lesser magistrate who protects him from the people who want to kill him. And then the lesser magistrate says, please reform my churches. Please tell everyone what to think. Please educate all yeah. the men in the country. Right. And then he's like, it, we'll give you this yeah. monastery. Just do it. Uh, <laughs> right. And contra- contrast that with a, we'll say Calvin, since we're going to go up and around over. You know, Calvin is exiled from Geneva at one point. Right. They eventually beg him to come back. But then let's go. So if, if if he influences all these Englishmen, they might be safe in their beds for a year or two and then find themselves exiled again and again. And right. so, yeah, there's never no one great English theologian ever finds himself that comfortable in the time of the English Reformation. That's very true. <laughs> right. So, well, with that, we've got to take our second break and we'll be right back with more Word Fitly. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all them that trust in Him. The book that sits on your shelf, The One Gathering Dust, Word Fitly Spoken, asks you to once again take up and read. Hear the words of the only wise God and be saved. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to Word Fitly. Willie Grills and Adam Coons here talking about English Lutheranism, English Reformation, whatever we end up titling this episode. That's what we're talking about. Well, now we want to come back to Mr. Robert Barnes, the man that we heard about at the very, very beginning of the show in the intro. I mean, Robert Barnes, arguably the only true Lutheran we can talk about, the only indisputably Lutheran Englishman yeah, that we right, can talk about right. thus far. Yeah. <laughs> The only indisputable one, I mean, it's it's a word that's used as a term of abuse, also in court trials for different people, sometimes for selling Luther's books, used correctly, the Hanseatic merchants in London who get into some legal hot water for importing contraband Bibles and uh, Lutheran writings. But Barnes is the only one that you can say, you can look at him theologically throughout his life and say, yes, theologically, he's a Lutheran, even on very particular issues that we'll talk about. So he is from Norfolk. The reason that's important is because it's an area that is sort of permeable to the continent. You're not going to get a lot of Reformation activity from, you know, Lancashire or uh, Cornwall, you know, present company excluded, because (laughs) they're just distant from contact with the continent. He's born in 1495. Like Luther, who's, you know, 12 years older, he becomes an Augustinian friar. And he's in Cambridge in the early 1520s when uh, Lutheran writings become available. And as we mentioned earlier in the episode, he gets into hot water for a sermon on Christmas Eve in 1525 that is critical, not specifically about justification, but really about uh, ecclesiastical authority. Yeah, that'll, that'll get you more. Attacking yep. the bishops and, and church authority, then as now, will get you in more trouble than actual... <laughs> that'll uh, do it. Yep. Than that'll actual do a- doctrinal error, yeah. 
<laughs> and so he is arrested. He's put on trial and he is imprisoned for two years in Fleet Street in London. He escapes probably with the help of continental merchants, whether they were Germans or Englishmen trading. It's not clear, but he escapes to the continent in 1528. After that, it's kind of hard to track him, but we do know that he traveled to a variety of different places, probably both English expat communities in places like Antwerp, Brussels, Paris. But he definitely gets to Wittenberg because he matriculates under the name of sometimes called John Anglus or Dr. Anglus. At, he matriculates at Wittenberg in 1530. It's there that he's going to publish his first work in Latin called in brief sententiae. And these are sort of like debating points. Some of them are biblical. A lot of them are patristic proofs for Lutheran doctrine. So this is published in Wittenberg in 1530 in Latin. It's translated, Bugenhagen, the pastor of Wittenberg, writes the preface and then himself translates the work into German in 1531. So one of the interesting things about this is that men like Barnes, but also a name we don't really have time for today, John Rogers, these men will often get some experience as Lutheran parish pastors before they go back to England. And so there's this really interesting period in the 1520s, 1530s, when you have these men who are Englishmen serving as Lutheran parish pastors, even for however briefly. The Sententiae have 19 articles, and they're going to really closely parallel the Augsburg Confession. This is not really what's going to get Barnes publicly noticed in England, a place that he's trying to get back to. What's going to do that is, a, is a, a, something in English that's going to come out the next year called, in brief, his Supplication, uh, Supplication to Henry VIII. That's really only the title of the first essay. There are a bunch of essays. Most of them are doctrinal. But that, that supplication is published in 1531 in Antwerp, like Tyndale's Bibles, because Antwerp is a place that you can get English writings back into England from. And a lot of it's going to be about his problems and how he was unjustly accused and unjustly tried. And this will actually get him noticed to Henry, and that's how he gets back into power, or, or rather into power with Henry for the first time by the early 1530s, and then becomes involved in those negotiations with the Lutherans that we talked about earlier. In these doctrinal essays, you've got a lot of stuff. I want to just highlight one, especially for today, although you can you can find them. Um, I think you can find them at Early English Books Online. You can find his essays because they were reprinted later in Elizabethan times. And he has a Lutheran doctrine of the Lord's Supper not affirming transubstantiation, nor denying the, the corporal presence of Christ in the supper. He has a Lutheran doctrine of justification by faith. What's really, that actually will not be at all controversial for any English Protestant. What will be, and what is really unique, and you can tell at any time that you try to explain to somebody that doesn't know about Lutheranism in you know the US or the UK or whatever, try explaining to them the Lutheran doctrine on predestination. Okay, so our our the election uh, the election of grace happens solely due to God's will and Christ's merit. A damnation happens solely due to the evil wills of Satan and of damned men. Okay, try articulating that to somebody. They're probably gonna they're probably gonna classify you if English is their native language as an Arminian. <laughs> <laughs> right. Probably, yeah. 
Barnes is probably the only person that you can find in English prior to, you know, Lutherans beginning to speak English in the United States uh, or what becomes the United States, articulating a Lutheran doctrine of predestination almost completely unique. And it's there in his supplication from 1531. Well, it is, and it is interesting. I mean, um, you know, to go back to the predestination thing, how, how again, Lutheranism continues to not fit really in any, any neat little box that we want to put it in. (laughs) Right. Right. You know, as much as we might want to. And so it becomes complicated, even, even in its nascent form. So nothing new under the sun in that way. Not at all. And it is interesting that once he gets back to England, he has this diplomatic role. Uh, so you can't really make a distinction between being a theologian and being a diplomat, strictly speaking. He also has really large language capacities. So he's very useful diplomatically. But what he works on when he comes back to England, the thing that he does author that is rather more original, to be honest with you, than a supplication, which is sort of supplication could have been written by any Orthodox Lutheran pastor. You know, I mean, it's notable for being in English. It's it's unique for us for whom English is our mother tongue. But the thing that he does that is rather original is a historical study of the papacy. Okay. And the reason that this becomes so important and the reason that the figure of the papacy, and I think to some extent, the sort of reflexive anti-Roman Catholicism that English speaking Protestants at least used to have is because of the nature of the papacy as the, the connecting link between England and the continent, both religiously and politically such that the rejection of the papacy is not only doctrinal, it's also a sort of political and national confession. It's a kind of declaration of independence. And so once he comes back to England, the thing that he's going to busy himself with is to say, look, we will determine our religion here according to the scripture and according to nothing else. Because the thing that will exercise dominion over scripture, the papacy, is itself if you look at its history, if you look at its rise, it is itself a display of ungodliness, the like of which the world has never seen before or since. And so that's what he devotes himself to. And a lot of times historians will gloss over that because there's a debate historically, and I'll throw Corey Moss's helpful article in the notes. There's a debate that people like to have because reform people will know about Barnes, about you know what was his doctrine of the Eucharist, because the way that it gets reported by John Fox, the martyrologist, It's not clear. Did he believe in transubstantiation? Did he not? Well, he was a Lutheran. So to to a lot of people, that seems like transubstantiation. Right. And I mean, that's, I mean, you, again, back to the, to Wycliffe, you could even argue that their position on the Eucharist is closer to what Luther's will be. Right. I mean, even, even in Tyndale with Fox, it becomes interesting because I think Barnes is there a bit later in the editions of Acts and Monuments. And so by that point, uh, Reformed theology has developed even even more so. And I could be mistaken right. on that. It, with Fox's Book of Martyrs, th- keeping track of the editions and when was put in what, and where you know when the abridgment was made becomes becomes tricky. And I say all that to say, if you're writing so long after a death, you know a certain embellished hagiography can kind of happen. And yep. we see that with exactly. uh, with several other figures. 
and we have to be a little bit discerning there. Yeah, I think with Barnes, though, it's probably fair to say he holds to Luther's doctrine. And yeah, it, it takes us a while. That's where, I mean, even, even though Zwingli is a bit earlier, Calvin's position is going to win out largely because I th- it is, it's not quite memorialist, mm-hmm. so it's not totally that as radical to a lot of people, so it's a bit more palatable. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Say all that to say that the Eucharist is very important and that when you try to take away any idea of actual presence, then people become very uncomfortable with it. I mean, you know, because it's against the scriptures, of course, but also because, you know, we live in a time where a symbolic view of the sacrament is the norm for many churches. Mm-hmm. Right. So any other, you know, Protestant group, virtually any other Protestant group outside of a confessional reform group is going to say that, well, it's a symbol. They might like tip the hat to some spiritual language while Jesus is spiritually present or something, you know, something that doesn't really mean anything. Even Lutherans like to sometimes muddy the waters when it comes to the presence. They can't just say it's his body and blood. You know, they have to say, well, you know, actually it's blah, blah, blah. And I just wish people would quit doing that and do what men like Barnes and Luther did and say it's his body and blood. Yeah. Anyway, so anyway, the whole point to say that yeah. was, yeah, I, I wonder <laughs> where it fell in, in Fox's timeline, in the additions timeline, and if it's actually importing a more reformed understanding, you know, into into a great figure in church history. Right. It's I mean, if something like that can happen to a man that expressed himself with as much forcefulness and at such length as Luther did. Imagine what happens to somebody like Barnes, who leaves relatively few writings and is rather alone in the particularity of his theological convictions. Because what's interesting for me about Barnes's story, which is going to end in burning, is that Lutheranism struggles in England partly because of a lack of familiarity, partly because of a language barrier, certainly between what is available, you know, I mean, Luther is a publishing phenom on the continent in both Latin and German. All of that's going to take longer to be accessible to anybody uh, in England. But Barnes does not have the backing that Luther secures, Calvin at least sometimes secures. And so even when he is in any kind of governmental power, it is tenuous. And the other people that agree with him, the other, you know, evangelicals, Protestants, if you want to call them that, they don't have the same convictions necessarily. And so Barnes is not an unsuccessful man, but he is a lonely man. And I think that sometimes when we talk about the lonely way, there can be a valorization of, you know, being alone in your convictions, there can be a valorization of being the only person who thinks something. I guess that's sort of okay. And that can sometimes be comforting. But if you want your movement, your theology, your way of life to survive, you have to build groups. I'm not saying institutions necessarily, but you have to build and sustain groups. And Barnes is not able to do that. Yeah. Don't let the phrase lonely way become a cope. Right, and, exactly. And let, it, and let it be just, oh, here I am all alone and, and correct. Yeah, you want to build coalitions. And again, that, that, that might be too corporate of a word. You want to build uh, fellowships. You want to find like-minded individuals willing to work toward the same goals for the sake of the goals, for the, for the good of the cause. As it yeah, were. right. 
because when the, when the Puritans, who are a different Protestant stream, go out of favor rather decisively in the Elizabethan era, they build parallel institutions next to the officially authorized ones, and they thereby survive. And some of them emigrate, many of them emigrate, but some of them continue to maintain those parallel institutions really down to the 20th century. So Barnes hitches his wagon to Henry, totally understandable under the circumstances, but in being rather alone and also in not having any kind of network that he builds that's sustainable, his theological vision does not carry on after his demise, which is decided by that central authority to whom he has hitched his destiny. Mm -hmm. One of the, I think, marvelous ironies, marvelous, tremendous, terrible, pick your word, ironies of Barnes's life is that he is burned with other evangelicals, but also with papists. <laughs> In 15, four, by 1540, Henry doesn't need anyone's help at that point. He feels secure in his reign. He feels like things are going fine. His continental fortunes are working themselves out. There is a sort of libel that Barnes opposed his divorce, Henry's divorce from Anne of Cleves. Not actually true. The issue is that Barnes finally cannot submit to, nor can papists submit to, the ecclesiastical supremacy of the monarch. And so when Barnes is burnt to death at a Smithfield in Gloucestershire, he dies with people that have completely opposite theological convictions, <laughs> about which Henry does not care. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because what he does care about is that they are both likewise opposing his complete supremacy over the English church. Right. And so here, you know, it goes back to the early rumblings of, of an English reformation, which said that the church being intermingled with temporal authority is dangerous. We could tie this even to our Tennessee Senate episodes, which says that, yeah. you know, authority is inherently dangerous because this is what happens. You, it is authority for authority's sake and innocent men end up burned at the stake for it or right. persecuted for it, or their livelihoods are taken away or any other metered punishment that they are suffered, that they suffer at the hands of unwise, carnal, and lukewarm guides. Not that I'm saying uh, Henry VIII was any of those things. <laughs> well, he definitely wasn't a lukewarm man, but he was probably a carnal yeah. man. Yeah, certainly yeah. carnal. And you know, I kind of feel bad <laughs> for him because uh, everybody remembers Henry VIII as a big fatty, and that didn't come till later. He's actually a very trim young man. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but he 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 ate too much and eventually uh, laid around too much and he got fat and that's it. that's how yeah. everyone remembers him as a big fat lecher and that's just not how you <laughs> want to be that's not how history wants to should remember a king of England yet here we are could do worse <laughs> I suppose they have <laughs> well it you know went in both in his protestation from which. You were reading from Fox at the, you know, and the Barnes's protestation is the is the report which became to some extent popular. It reached the continent. It's why Luther, when he received Barnes's, you know, his confession at his burning, uh, he called him Saint Robert. The reason for these things is because uh, Barnes made a distinction that sometimes gets mocked in our circles, and I really don't like that because you find Christians moving to this distinction. If you don't want to be a Donatist. When you are under persecution, they always go to this distinction. The Lord himself articulates the distinction in speaking to Elijah. And that is a distinction between the visible church, 
and the Invisible Church. And Walther went to it too when they were wondering whether the whole the whole game was up in Perry County. Barnes articulates this distinction because he realizes that there has to be a difference. There has to be between the flock that hears Christ's voice, who shall never be snatched from his hand. There has to be a difference between that and the men in the ornate hats and copes who are persecuting the gospel in his own country. He, he knows there must be a distinction between those two things. So uh, you'll hear it at the end of the episode as well, if you stick around for that. Your call. In an earlier writing written 10 years before his, his, uh, his death, but that distinction is key uh, so often when the church is under persecution, you realize that there has to be a difference between the vast mass of people who go happily and gleefully to their own damnation and the remnant who hear the shepherd's voice and only listen to that one faithful voice. Very good. And with that, we are at time. This has been a word fitly spoken. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be yeah, my continuing pleasure. on this subject in uh, many and various ways um, in the coming weeks, uh, whenever we get around to it. Again, this has been a word fitly spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Adam Kuntz. God love you and God bless. They that believe that Christ hath washed them from their sins, and stick fast unto his merits, and to the promise made to them in him only, they be the church of God, and so pure and clean, that it shall not be lawful, no, not for Peter, to say that they be unclean. But whether they be Jew or Greek, king or subject, carter or cardinal, butcher or bishop, tankard bearer or carmel rater, free or bound, friar or fiddler, monk or miller. If they believe in Christ's word and stick fast to his blessed promises and trust only in the merits of his blessed blood, they be the holy church of God, yea, and the very true church of God. Robert Barnes.